You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 30. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we live in an age where men are clowns or rogues. The clownish man is often portrayed in our sitcoms. It's the bumbling husband who, by his immaturity and shenanigans and childishness, ends up making a mess in the family only to be cleaned up by his mom-like wife to come to his rescue. Clownish men are buffoons who shirk from responsibility and display this apathetic cowardliness to their lives. They retreat to the imaginary, fighting wars through digital pixels. A clownish man has his ambitions far too easily satisfied by the games by which he plays which consists of the trivial and the insignificant and the pointless. The roguish man is portrayed often in our dramas. It's the controlling husband who by his aggression and selfishness presses his power upon those around him, terrorizing his wife and his children. Roguish men are schemers who manipulate others, who twist the truth, and who use it for their own advantage. They they launch themselves into combat, not to defend the weak, but to protect their own reputation and their own vain glory, often leaving behind the carnage of broken lives run over by their prideful ambition. These are the two conceptions of masculinity that dominate our media today through these clownish and roguish distortions. In fact, examples of biblical masculinity have become so absent in our culture that it's sad that our culture can't even imagine what a biblically faithful man might even look like in the entertainment we consume, let alone celebrate the the wisdom of God's design for masculinity. It exposes something that has gone terribly awry in our culture and in our society when the first adjective that we instinctively put in front of masculinity is toxic. Much of the breakdown of the family today stems from weak men who fall short of God's ideals for them as husbands. 
And man, I could certainly pile on like the rest of our culture in terms of our many failures. But what I want to do this morning is I want to instruct you and I want to encourage you to embrace the biblical idea, ideal of manhood, particularly for those of you who are husbands. Some of you may be called to the noble and lifelong gift of singleness, a, a gift of celibacy given by the Spirit. But most of you either are a husband or will prepare one day to become a husband. So therefore, listen very carefully to Paul's instructions about marriage and the honorable calling of being a Christian husband. The relationship of marriage described in Ephesians 5, which we introduced last week, we see that God's intention for us in the covenant of marriage can only lived out, be lived out correctly and properly when the husband and the wife are filled by the Spirit of God. So we shouldn't be surprised that those without the Spirit often fail to uphold God's design. Sin, in all its forms, is a wrecking ball to marriage and family. But we shouldn't let the reality of sin cause us to disregard the goodness of God's design for husbands and wives in the Christian family. Because if the family is God's idea, then we can only rightly live it out with the help of the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us his spirit to empower us for the task. You know, it's really no wonder that our culture has such a hard time realizing and seeing, beholding the beauty and goodness of Christian marriage. So they don't have the spirit of God. And by experiencing the effects of sins and the failures of so many husbands, either in the clownish or the roguish varieties, we can often miss the good and honorable calling of Christian husbands here in Ephesians 5. So as we're going to work through this morning, these instructions for husbands, Paul is going to command their, that the husbands to love their wives. And we're going to see three descriptors this morning of a husband's love. A husband's love should be first, sacrificial. Second, his love should be sanctifying. And third, we will see that, in fact, a husband's love is self-love. So let's think firstly about sacrificial love here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, after urging wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, Paul now in verse 25 directs his attention to husbands. Now, while women are not commanded to submit, it ought never to be a thing compelled by the husband. Men are commanded to love their wives. This is an imperative verb. Men, love your wives. The imperative for a husband to love his wife is not only emphasized in verse 25, but is also repeated in verse 28 and in verses 33. Love is God's command for Christian husbands. Paul's charge to husbands might not sound all that revolutionary to us. Husbands, love your wives. But in the ancient world, in the first century, it, nobody expected a husband to love his wife. The pagans would have expected Paul to say, husbands, rule over your wife. They would not have expected Paul to say, husbands, love your wife. Let me give you just three examples of how the pagans often thought about their wives. To give you a sense of what the way men thought of their wives in the first century. 
Demosthenes said this, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. Or Socrates said this, is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters to than to your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? <laughs> Xenophon advised husbands to organize their life so that their wives might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. As you can see, marriage was functionally meaningless in the ancient world. Love did not describe the relationship at all. And while even Jewish writers would rebuke the sort of sexual sin that the pagans gave themselves for, this sort of adultery, even the Jewish writings often don't use love to describe the relationship of marriage. And the Greco-Roman household codes never use the term love to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife. So Paul's charge here in Ephesians 5 for husbands to love their wives, this is a revolutionary call in the ancient world. It, it's, Paul is completely remapping the marriage relationship according to God's intention for it in Christ. You know, we can see throughout the scriptures how human sin has often perverted God's design for marriage and family. We can look in the Old Testament to find evidence for that. Look at Abraham's use of Hagar to produce an heir in Ishmael, or Jacob's multiple wives, Rachel and Leah, which created undue family strife, or Samson's love for prostitutes, or David's adultery with Bathsheba, or Solomon's 700 wives and 300 concubines. And though the Old Testament describes these perversions to God's design for marriage, it never condones them let alone celebrates them. Now that Christ has come, and now that he has saved his church, and now that he has filled his saints with the Spirit of God, Paul is aiming in Ephesians 5 to recover God's created design for marriage and family. It's why his words were so revolutionary in his day. And it's why the qualifications for an elder are that he must be a one-woman man. Polygamists are disqualified for eldership. So Paul recovers in Ephesians 5, God's ideal, God's intention, God's design by helping us see how the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ correctly defines marriage and how marriage rightly lived out points to the reality of the gospel. And so he commands husbands to love their wives, to love their wives. Now that command doesn't sound as surprising to us as it would have to the first century. You know, we almost expect a husband to love his wife. At least we know that's what he ought to be doing. But I think that is evidence of just how Christianity has positively shaped our cultural assumptions about marriage. Why do we think that marriage ought to be a loving relationship? Where did that come from? Well, it didn't come from the pagans. It came from the scriptures. We're looking at the text, this very text that has shaped even the pagans in our world today, their intuitions about marriage. The concept of a loving marriage is a Christian idea. But the love that we assume today, as we talk about husbands and wives loving each other, that love is often a sentimental love, not a sanctifying love like we'll talk about this morning. Paul's definition of love and our culture's definition of love is often very different from one another, isn't it? 
now more than ever, we have to define our terms, particularly when a word like love is used so ubiquitous and flippantly in our culture today. So the command for husbands to love their wives is given in the context of authority that God has given them as head over their wives. So scripture is an attempt to defend the ideas of authority and submission, which we talked about so much last week. And Paul doesn't attempt to defend them here in Ephesians either. He simply presents them as a part of the reality of God's wise design in the ordering of his creation. And even though all Christians are urged to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, it doesn't imply an identity, uh, identical roles between those parties. Husbands are never charged to submit to their wives. A husband who possesses the call of leadership and headship is to exercise his authority for the good of the family. Using his authority rightly, he is to be given the responsibility and the charge to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And here is what Paul defines the charge of love. He, he points us to who? He points us to Jesus. Jesus is the one who defines true love. He defines what it means for a husband to love. And love is not a quaint feeling and love is not warm fuzzies in your belly, but it's the courageous and intentional choice to lay down your life for the good of another. The gospel turns on its head the ancient world's conception of marriage. And instead of asking wives to serve their husbands and to sacrifice for their husbands, Paul inverses it. Husbands are to sacrifice themselves for their wives. Paul takes Jesus's teaching on greatness and authority in his kingdom, and he takes how Jesus reverses it from the cultural assumptions. And Paul's just simply taking what Jesus taught and applying it to the context of marriage. Remember the sons of Zebedee in the gospels? They approach Jesus with a request. They want a place of prominence and privilege and authority and influence in the kingdom of God. And they say, Jesus, let us sit one at your left and one at your right. We want privilege, we want power, we want authority, we want respect, we want honor. And the other 10 disciples were angry because they didn't think of asking Jesus first. They were indignant at the requests, wanting the prominent seats of power for themselves. But Jesus rebukes all the disciples for their worldly notions of authority that are not reflected of the virtues of his kingdom. What does Jesus say in Mark 10, verse 42 through 45? Here's what he tells them. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So as a husband exercises his headship and the authority that God has given them, he is to love his wife through his sacrificial service of her. Servant leadership is the model of Christian leadership. And it is the model that ought to describe a husband's headship and love for his wife in the home. If we hope to love our, life, love our wives, we have to look to the example of Jesus. Christ loved the church by giving his life up for her. 
So while the husband is the, the head of his wife, he ought not to ever use his authority for selfish ends, but for the selfless serving of his bride. For a Christian husband, headship does not bestow the right to tyranny, but the prerogative of self-denial. The husband's rights as head are used to put himself last, not to exalt himself first. And so though Jesus was never married to a woman, Jesus is the quintessential husband, isn't he? He is the standard bearer of a husband's love. And any man who longs to be a faithful husband to his wife must first keep his gaze fixed on Jesus, who is both the model and the standard bearer of a husband's love. A man must first know what it means to be the bride of Christ before he can be a husband to a wife. Unless we have experience for ourselves, the ravishing love of Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for our redemption, we will not know how to properly love our wives. And when loving our wives, a Christian husband doesn't have an option for this task, does he? This is an imperative. It is a command. Love is command. We are commanded as husbands to love our wives as Christ has loved us. Thus, we sacrifice ourselves. No matter the inconvenience, no matter the cost, no matter our feelings, while love should certainly bring deep affection, husbands are to cherish their wives, as Paul will tell us later. But a husband's love ought never to be diminished by the fickle heart of our human emotions. If we restrain our love based off of how we feel in any given moment, we will not love our wives as Christ has called us to. The husband's love is defined by Christ. We are not called to love our wives as we feel like loving them or as we think we ought to love them, but we love them as Christ has loved us. So as a husband, if a husband's going to love his wife sacrificially, he must look to Jesus. But Jesus's love also has an aim to it, doesn't it? Not only sacrifices himself for our sake, but he sanctifies us. And so should a husband's love has as its aim the sanctification of his bride. And that leads us to secondly to consider sanctifying love here in verse 26 and 27. That the husband's love has a particular telos, a, a goal to it, if you will. And Paul elaborates on this as he fleshes out the example of Christ in verse 26 and verse 27. And this is the model for the husband's love. In verse 28, husbands are called to love in the same way as Christ. So Jesus's aim of sacrificial love should therefore be the husband's aim and his love of his wife. And what was the goal of Jesus's love for us? Well, read the text. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So as Paul describes Christ's sanctifying work here, he's describing our positional sanctification, not our progressive sanctification. What do I mean by that? Well, our positional sanctification refers to our standing before God, our justification, if you will. That by faith, 
We have received once and for all Jesus's righteousness credited to us, and we have been declared holy before God in his heavenly throne. But our progressive sanctification refers to the ongoing progress of the Christian life as the spirit is at work within us, helping us to repent of sin and making our holiness a tangible reality in our lives. So how did Jesus sanctify his church? What does the text say? He cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now the water most likely refers to the spiritual cleansing that Jesus brings. This is part of the the wedding day preparations that a bride engaged in this ceremonial cleansing before her wedding day of the bridal bath. Ezekiel 16, which we read at the start of our service, provides the sort of backdrop of what Paul has in mind here in this text of how God cleanses and beautifies Israel as his bride. And so Jesus cleanses his church in the same way by the washing of water with the word. So Christ's washing is this sort of metaphorical washing as he's cleansing all away of the grime of our sin, of our shame, of our guilt, of what defiles us before God. And the means of his cleansing, his washing of us, is his word. It is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus uses to cleanse us as his bride. So Christ is the loving husband then who lays down his life on the cross to sanctify, to cleanse his bride. And Jesus cleanses us and he dresses us as his church in the robes of his righteousness without spot, without wrinkle. Jesus not only sacrifices for his bride, but he also beautifies his bride with his righteousness. And he presents her to himself holy and without blemish. It is our union with Christ that is our marriage to him. And on that great day of the Lord at the wedding feast of the Lamb, we will be with Christ and we will be cloaked in his perfect holiness and righteousness, which he has so graciously given to us by his love. So if you are, if your life this morning is filthy and stained with sin, good news, Christ can cleanse you. He is the lover of our souls. We are all sinners. And Christ, by his love, has laid down his life for us. Christ is our head. He is our husband. He is the one who redeems us and saves us. So if you do not know this Jesus this morning, if you are condemned in the filthiness of your sin, let me implore you, give your life to Christ. Turn from your sin with repentance and faith and be bound to a husband who will never leave you and a husband who will never forsake you. His steadfast love endures forever and he sanctifies his bride and he arrays us with untarnished beauty of his own holiness. And as we think about the aim of a husband's love in this life, we have to state something quite clearly as we understand this text. Husbands are to love like Christ, not as Christ. (laughs) Those are two very different things, aren't they? In other words, only Jesus is the savior not the husband. Husband, if you, if you strive to be the Messiah to your wife, you will fail and she will be inevitably disappointed if she isn't already. Married brothers and sisters, remind yourselves of this. If you put messianic expectations on one another, it will make for a miserable marriage and you will be a nightmare to be married to. 
Jesus is our savior. So husbands, as you strive to love your wife like Jesus, one of our key responsibilities is to keep pointing our wife's gaze to Jesus, the savior. So husbands, as you love your wife, keep pointing your bride's gaze to Jesus. Because though Jesus is the one who sanctifies us, our sacrificial love as husbands should have as that same aim, our wife's progressive sanctification. The Christian husband exercises his love. He denies himself not to be a pushover to make his wife a spoiled brat, but a sanctified saint. In other words, a godly husband has as his aim the spiritual growth and maturation of his wife in Christ. To do this, we have to realize that if our wives are to be holy, it is Christ's work, not ours. We are simply the means to be used by the Lord for our wives' holiness. Because only because of Jesus, our wives have that sort of positional sanctification. They are justified in Christ. She is holy now as she is standing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must learn, husbands, to look upon our wives as the darling and holy women they are who will one day stand before Christ, one day with with dazzling resurrected bodies, with blamelessness and holiness. Men, her marriage ends with you on the day of your death. It's till death do you part. But her marriage to Jesus will be forever. Jesus is not only a better husband to our wives than we could ever hope to be, but he will outlast us. Therefore, we have to remind ourselves to see our wives as Christ has made them, as Christ has saved them. And we must remind ourselves of who they will be in the age to come. This is Jesus's bride. If we are to love them as they are, we must see them as who they will be. In other words, we have to remember their positional sanctification in Christ if we hope to be an aid in their progressive sanctification. Just like us, our wives are Jesus's bride. And we have to humbly recognize that God has called us to serve her as her husband so that we might aid her in her growth in holiness. Husbands are to be a means of grace to their wives a gift from the Lord for their spiritual good. So we, we persist in this sacrificial love for the sanctification of our wives. And we do this until the progressive work of sanctification is complete at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just as Christ won't stop sanctifying us until we stand before him without blemish, a husband doesn't stop helping his wife grow in holiness, no matter how mature in the Lord she may be. We love our wives with the aim of her holiness as our goal. Husband, is your wife more holy for having been married to you? Has her love for Jesus and her hunger for his word, has it increased by your leadership? Has your marriage to her Have you helped her? Have you caused her to flourish in the Lord and all the giftings that the Lord has given her? Or have you caused her to stumble? Have you influenced her to be complacent in her faith? Have you led her into sin? Husband, is she more like Christ because of you or despite you? 
A husband is to be a prominent instrument in the hand of God for his wife's progressive sanctification. Because as husbands, you lead, and you cannot lead to nowhere. (laughs) Every leader leads, whether they want to lead or not, and every husband, as the head of his wife, will either lead her towards the Lord or away from the Lord. Either we are leading our wives closer to Jesus or away from Jesus. And by refusing to wash our wives with the water of the word of God, our negligence can contribute to her spiritual decline. So one of the challenges of Christian men today is that we have not always had good examples of this, have we? We have not always seen this sort of biblical masculinity on display in the home. Our young men today haven't seen it. Sadly, they haven't seen it in the church very frequently. And so to make it really practical, how how do we do this, husbands? How do we wash our wives with the word? How do we lead them and love them for their spiritual good? I'm glad you asked. I want to try to answer it for you. It starts with knowing the word of God ourselves. You can't give what you don't have. Men are far too ready to abdicate spiritual leadership to their wives. A man who can tell you the name of every player on his favorite team can't quote you one verse of scripture. A man who is always punctual for tea time seems to never make it to church on time. A man who never finds himself with a shortage of cash to invest in his toys fails to make that same investment in his wife's soul. Brothers, it starts with taking your own holiness seriously. You cannot lead your wife if you are not following Jesus. The spiritual immaturity of Christian men tends to actually further compound the problem. Our wives often seem to us further ahead of us in the faith than we are. I think a lot of Christian men struggle with this. And so Christian men feeling a little insecure about their lack of growth in Christ and paralyzed over their past failures, they just end up doing nothing. Just sort of give up. So how do you provide, husbands, spiritual leadership to a wife who chances are is more mature than you in Christ? Let me give you a a few practical suggestions, man, that maybe you can take and have this conversation with your wife this afternoon. First, humbly confess to your wife your failure and your personal negligence. Express your commitment to repentance, that you want to take your spiritual growth seriously not only so that you might honor the Lord and and obey him and show him that you want to glorify him with your life, but also that that you might love your wife better. Such confessions of our failure men is is humbling, but it will be life-giving for your marriage. One of the best ways that we can love our wives like Christ is by putting to death our pride. Second, men truly repent by investing yourself in the means of grace. Truly repent. Don't just say it. Just don't have a conversation this afternoon and then don't follow up with anything. But truly repent by investing yourself in those means of grace. Become a student of scripture. Be committed to the involvement in your local church. Find community. Find other brothers who are more mature than you, who can disciple you and train you. Devote yourself to the study of sound doctrine and to the scriptures and to theology. Become the man that God has called you to be, and the Lord will strengthen you as you strive to love your wife out of the overflow of your love for Christ. And then third, start providing spiritual leadership to your family. 
Start praying with your wife and push through the awkwardness of it. Gather your family around the Bible and read it to them. You will feel clumsy when you attempt to engage in spiritual leadership for the first time. And you will fail and you will struggle, but the godly husband persists through the clumsiness. Fourth, watch and imitate other faithful men. With so many of us lacking fathers who modeled godly masculinity for us, there is incredible value of latching yourself onto other Christian men in the church who provide an example. Take them out to lunch. Take them to coffee. Go, go play pickleball together or get on the golf course and have conversations. Ask them questions. Do what they do. Be faithful where they are faithful. Follow them as they follow Christ. And as men, we have to realize that we aren't Jesus. We will regularly fail to be the God, God's instruments for our wives' sanctification. But we must strive to love them with the love of Christ. We want to lay down our lives for her spiritual good and for her spiritual flourishing. So men, let us count the cost. Let us embrace the daily death to ourselves for the spiritual good of others. And that leads thirdly, that a husband's love is not just sacrificial and sanctifying. It is also self-love, self-love, verse 28 through 30. Paul, Paul takes the high ideals of, of loving like Christ in this sacrificial and sanctifying manner. And then he appeals to some sort of common sense argument for why husbands ought to love their wives. And Paul just gets real simple, straight to it, right? Men appreciate this sort of directness. Right? When you love your wife, you love yourself, right? If you need a reason, loving your wife is in your own self-interest in a sense. Paul appeals to this sort of natural desire that we have to care for our own bodies, and he extends that to our wives. And he does this because marriage is a union of souls. To love your wife is to love yourself because God has made you one flesh, Throughout this whole section, Paul has been paralleling the, the union between Christ and the church and applying it to marriage. And Paul makes this parallel so frequently, so recurringly, so extensively in Ephesians 5 that he shows that marriage is actually the divinely instituted model, a sign for pointing the world to the realities of the gospel. Something we'll consider more next week. But Paul will quote in verse 31, he quotes from the book of Genesis stressing the oneness. Look at what he says in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? The marital union is a one flesh union. And Paul has in mind here, not just the conjugal union of bodies, but the mingling of souls. There is a oneness to the husband and the wife that extends to every aspect of our lives. And so thus Paul makes a common sense appeal. A man who loves his wife will be happier, stronger, and a healthier man. A, a wife who is flourishing under her husband's love is a blessing to her husband. So husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, Paul says. Look at what he says in verse 29. He says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Thus a husband should give attention an interest to knowing his wife. Every Christian husband ought to be a student of his wife. Know her heart, know her struggles, know her dreams, her disappointments, her temptations, her gifts. 
Loving your wife means working at communication. A husband should long to know the heart of his wife. We must learn to prioritize time with our wives in conversation. Whether it's messages throughout the day or whether it's an evening debrief with a cup of tea after the kids go to bed, beyond those ordinary times of conversation, a husband should still strive to continue to romance his wife, becoming the lover of her soul. Whether it's dinner dates or whether it's nights away, husbands must continue to nourish and cherish their wives as their own bodies. Now, notice how Paul appeals to this sort of natural tendency that we all have for self-care. And then he points that self-care towards our wives. A husband who hates his wife is like a man who amputates his own limb, leaving it to rot on the ground. You know, we don't treat our bodies with that sort of violent indifference. So why would we do it to the woman whom God has joined to our flesh? But just as we nourish and cherish our bodies, so too, Paul says, should we husbands nourish our wives with the word and cherish them as precious gifts from God. So a man ought to nourish his wife, nourish. The call for nourishment is ingrained in the man's responsibility of providing for his wife. A godly husband sees to it that his wife has what she needs. Essential provision for physical needs is the starting point for a husband's love. Now, while the man has the responsibility to provide, we do have to be careful not to impose on it stereotypical visions of masculinity and femininity that come more from our culture than from the Bible. A, a biblical marriage doesn't always mean a traditional marriage in the sort of 1950s June Cleaver sort of traditional the Bible doesn't give an exact division of labor between husband and wife. There is freedom in Christ for couples to discern how to best live out the biblical principles for men and women in the home without becoming legalistic in the specific outworkings of how that should look in the home. So if a man is disabled or if the couple decides for a particular season to have the wife exclusively work for the husband to finish school or whatever circumstances the couple may face, the husband should still understand that he has a responsibility to lead and to nourish his family, ensuring that the needs of the family are provided for and that his wife, even though working, there's freedom for Christian obedience and all these designs for their marriage. Now, as Andreas Kostenberger, a New Testament scholar, I think he's right when he says the Bible is not a law book and does not legislate the exact division of labor husband and wife ought to observe. But a wise husband in his headship should seek to nourish his wife in his support and provision of her to enable her growth and her flourishing in the Lord. So we're not talking about just basic necessities here. The husband should see to it that his wife, of course, has food and shelter, but also security and health and love and friends and community. In other words, the husband in the nourishing of his wife should take the initiative in recognizing his wife's needs and ensure even to great personal cost that she has what she needs to thrive in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a husband who nourishes his wife by his love, we will be husbands who also cherish our wife, nourish and cherish our wife. A husband should long to see his wife flourish in all the endeavors she sets her mind and heart to. A godly husband will cause his wife's confidence and gifting to bloom under his leadership. A man who loves his wife loves himself. A strong, godly, confident, 
competent woman is a blessing to her husband, to her home, to her church, and to all around her. And it's an insecure husband who will attempt to keep his wife weak, subservient, and doubting. But a husband who aims to keep his wife weak makes himself weak. Imagine a bodybuilder who goes to the gym and only curls his right arm instead of his left. His right arm grows thicker and massive, and before long, he's getting stronger. He's curling 50 pounds, 70 pounds, 100 pounds with his right arm, but he ignores his left arm. And the left arm is skinny, weak, and powerless. Man, if we recognize that we are one flesh with our wives, then as they grow in godliness, as they grow in maturity, as they grow in their gifting, as they grow in their confidence, we are the beneficiaries. Whoever loves his wife loves himself. So men, cherish your wives. Your love for her is a great stewardship. Love them at high cost to yourself. Lay down your life for them just as Christ has done for you. And as you love them, aim to be used by God for her sanctification. Be an aid to her in her growth and maturity and Jesus. Provide spiritual leadership every day as you wash her with the water of the word. And as you love your wife, you will love yourself. Your career, your marriage, your children, your church, your neighborhood, they're going to be strengthened and blessed by the hands of a nourished and cherished wife. Though we will never be Christ to our wives, we must love our wives as Christ has loved us. Men, if we exercise our headship like Christ and love our wives as Jesus has loved us, then our wives will be glad to submit to our leadership. And as we strive to live out God's design for our marriages, may we testify to the world of the power of the gospel and the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come before you so grateful, Lord, that you have set the pattern of love. Lord Jesus, that you laid down your life for us upon the cross, washing us, cleansing us, making us holy and blameless before you. Father, I pray for our husbands in this room, Lord, that they might love their wives as Christ has loved them that our wives would be growing in holiness, growing in maturity, growing in confidence. Lord, that we would love our wives for their spiritual flourishing in your son. So God, we pray, Lord, that where there is conviction of sin, or that we would repent, that we would humble ourselves, and Lord, that we would truly change the conduct of our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. But Lord, above all, we are just grateful that you are the God who cleanses us from our sins through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.